Welcome to another Infographic Instant conference series with Brian Michael. In this episode, we'll be looking at the optimal design of Chin High. And of course, before we start, we'd like to thank the theme-based research scheme of Hong Kong's Research Grants Council. Of course, the opinions expressed here represent my own and not necessarily those of co-authors or the institutions to which we affiliate. Before we start, let's review the major sections of this presentation. In the first part, we will look at Chen Hai's costs and benefits. We will look at the innovation system currently existing in Shenzhen and Hong Kong. And we will also look at the lack of performance of government support programs in Shenzhen and Hong Kong. We will look at the lack of effectiveness of innovation policies in Hong Kong and Shenzhen. And we will specifically focus on the current plans for Qianhai, the problems with those plans, and ways of working around those problems. In the next major section of this presentation, we will be looking at a model of Qianhai. We will be modeling how profits interact with research and R&D and overall revenues, as well as cash available for investment. In that section, we will be looking at data from Shenzhen and Hong Kong's innovative companies, namely those companies targeted specifically by Qianhai policy, in order to assess the likely effects of Qianhai under different scenarios. And that analysis will show that legal change or changes in regulations will produce far more benefits than simple infrastructure investment. We will show that legal change will more than make up for any costs incurred, either politically or economically. We will show how relatively radical legal change can expand Hong Kong and Shenzhen as international financial centers. And we'll show how legal change, depending on the extent of this change, can produce four times growth in the low part of the estimate up to 10 times growth in the higher part of the estimate. And the main results that we find in this presentation are that Qianhai is unlikely to produce any benefits as it is currently designed. We show that Qianhai should produce four times growth in these innovative sectors with only modest regulatory reform. We show that there could be up to 10 times growth with significant legal reform. And we show how the Qianhai project can actually save failing innovation policy in both Hong Kong and Shenzhen. One of the innovations of this study relative to other studies is that we focus on innovation only because of its impacts on profits. Following the standard economic paradigm, we believe that profits represent the ultimate benefit of any company activity. Thus, if innovation policy produces positive results, either for the region as an international financial center or as an innovation system, we would expect to see those benefits eventually reflect in these firms' profitability. As such, profits represent the only real measure of innovation policy as the prime directive of companies revolves around making profits. What is Qianhai? Numerous observers have written about Qianhai, reviewing what the project is, as well as some of the likely benefits from the project. In our paper, we review four overviews of Qianhai, presenting Collier's vision of Qianhai as promoting innovation by offering relaxing spaces and lightening real estate constraints. We review Credit Suisse's vision of Qianhai as a platform for further internationalizing Chinese renminbi, as well as representing a platform for Hong Kong companies looking to market high-tech products on the mainland. We review Daiwa's vision of Qianhai as a logistics center and Cushman Wakefield's view of Qianhai as basically a land extension of Hong Kong. And we can summarize the value that most pundits see in Qianhai with the following four components. 
most observers of Chin High see the value of the project as easing financial constraints, attracting more investable funds, attracting technology companies in the same geographical place where they can learn from each other, a region where these high-tech companies can access China's very large market, and reducing costs minus the costs that these companies would incur from competing extensively with each other and with competitors in Shenzhen, in Hong Kong, and on the mainland. And as we'll show in the paper, Shenhai could represent much more than the real estate development that many people focus on in their discussions. For all of the hype around Qinghai, the actual benefits that Qinghai will produce are very much in doubt. Many econometric studies have sought to quantify the benefits of projects like Qinghai, but serious design problems make these studies almost completely unusable. One example of such a study is Jang et al.'s 2009 study where they supposedly find a Guangdong effect of deepening integration in the Pearl River Delta region. And what their regression analysis shows is that GDP per capita as well as productivity growth as proxied by total factor productivity increases with further access to mainland markets with an uh, overall increase in trade in the Guangdong region. These benefits decrease with manufacturing, suggesting that a focus on manufacturing sectors nowadays actually hobbles growth. And the model looks reasonably well developed with a proportion of variance explained at roughly 70 to 73 percent. In this particular case, the model doesn't control for outside factors, and thus the benefits found in this study seem very dubious. Other studies purport to show similar gains. In figure eight from our paper, we show the results of research looking at changes in nominal GDP as new high-tech development zones appear on the mainland. And what these studies supposedly show is that as China makes these new high-tech development zones, we see relatively significant increases in nominal GDP from even the run-up to the development of these zones, reaching their summit about 10 years after the development of these zones, and proceeding up until roughly 20 years on. The appearance of these zones usually coincides with larger scale reforms because the Chinese government has to adopt liberalization measures in order to allow these zones to develop. Contributing to the discussion of these increasing benefits, other studies purport to show similar gains. As this study proposedly shows, the Closer Economic Partnership Agreement, which fundamentally represents a free trade agreement in the Pearl River Delta area, supposedly contributed to relatively large increases in GDP growth in the previous years. These authors show the actual growth rate experienced in the region compared with growth that would have occurred without this partnership. And supposedly, according to their Monte Carlo simulation, the SEPA increased growth from 4 to 6% over the time period. Yet, studies like this suffer because they do not consider extraneous factors when trying to look at the real effects that closer integration in the region has caused. Thus, the mass media assumes that Qinghai will automatically result in economic and innovation gains. Much of the econometric analysis purportedly shows that increasing trade and integration in the region stimulates growth. Yet, we don't have any reliable econometric studies actually showing the effects of deeper innovation policy and trade policy in the region. As such, we really don't know what effect Qinghai would have either on Shenzhen and Hong Kong's economies or on innovation in the region. Naturally, Qinghai has its own costs associated with the development. We show the layout of Qinghai as a real estate project, and as we see from artist renditions, 
the Chinhai project expands across a wide area with surface area of roughly a 15,000 kilometers squared. The project's total budget naturally depends on the source consulted, yet most of these estimates seem to center around 11 billion US dollars. And the project should create a commercial developable area of roughly 3.6 million meters squared and residential area of almost twice that amount at 6.5 million meters squared. The region has an estimated total population of roughly a quarter million people, showing that the project's population certainly doesn't measure up to those in Hong Kong and Shenzhen. Nevertheless, the region should house a relatively large number of businesses and employees working in those businesses. By simply going down the list of activities that the Qinhai Authority and other local planners have developed, we put spending on Qinhai as a real estate project of roughly 35 billion Hong Kong dollars. And the division of that spending comes to roughly four to one in capital versus labor's favor. As such, we expect spending on the order of 30 billion Hong Kong dollars over the next two years and hiring of labor at roughly four to five billion Hong Kong dollars. If economic planners see a bright future in Qianhai, then outside observers similarly forecast this bright future. The figure we see in front of us shows world media mentions of Qinhai as opposed to Chinese innovation in general. As most of you know, China's innovation has been much discussed in recent years, and the common consensus developing is that China is starting to develop its own innovation system. Yet despite the tremendous excitement generated over China's overall innovation for the entire country, we see that mentions on a month-by-month -month basis of Qianhai well outstrip those mentions of innovation in general for the entire country. Thus, if experts predict Qianhai's success, then media observers around the world predict similar success. Yet, despite these predictions of success, nothing in the current plan suggests a revolutionary approach. In other words, simply going down Qianhai's plan, one might expect this is just another neighborhood development similar to those already underway in Hong Kong and Shenzhen. Yet, a project like Qianhai is beguiling because most observers see a division of labor between Shenzhen and Hong Kong. If Shenzhen provides the R&D and industrial might, then Hong Kong provides the financial might and links to the outside world. Figure three from our paper shows innovation in a range of areas that any innovation zone would require in order to succeed. Thus, in terms of high-tech exports, knowledge creation, a GDP growth, knowledge impact, new business development, the production of publications and the citation of those publications, Shenzhen has a clear advantage over Hong Kong, at least according to the Global Innovation Index. Hong Kong is more competitive in royalties and license fees, as well as sending money out of the area. While Shenzhen may invest far more resources into R&D and production, Hong Kong clearly has the institutional infrastructure needed for any profitable commercial area. Figure 4 shows innovation index scores in a range of general areas that any innovation zone would require. Thus, Hong Kong's institutions score almost twice as well in terms of innovation index scores. Hong Kong's scores come out at roughly twice Shenzhen's scores, as does Hong Kong's market sophistication. Hong Kong also leads Shenzhen in terms of its creative outputs, its overall infrastructure, its human capital and research, as well as its business sophistication. Yet we see Shenzhen very quickly catching up in terms of human capital and business sophistication, leading many observers to ask whether Hong Kong and Shenzhen are truly complements or rivals. 
No matter the answer to that question, high-tech integration in the region would certainly help Hong Kong develop its high-tech industries. Figure 24 from our paper shows high-tech exports coming out of Shenzhen and Hong Kong. And as we see, Shenzhen's high-tech exports took off in 2010 and remained well above those of Hong Kong after that time. Figure 30 shows that on average, Shenzhen's R&D spending outstrips that of Hong Kong, and Hong Kong companies tend to employ far more assets than their Shenzhen rivals in order to produce the types of innovations and high-tech exports the region needs in order to compete in the global marketplace. So looking at the overall picture portrayed in these infographics, one might see Shenzhen as the smart part of the cooperation and Hong Kong as the connected part. Moreover, R&D spending tends to have different effects in each of these regions. If we look at the most important measure of the impact of such R&D spending, we see that profits from R&D, as measured by EBITDA, or earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization, we see that Shenzhen's companies tend to convert R&D spending much more efficiently into profits than Hong Kong companies. We see that not only is such R&D spending more profitable, but such spending grows far more quickly in Shenzhen than in Hong Kong. Since 2008, Hong Kong's R&D expenditure has increased by roughly 6% on average, whereas in Shenzhen's R&D spending has increased by roughly 25-26%. And expressed as a total of the gross metropolitan product, we see that Shenzhen's R&D spending weighs in at roughly three times that of Hong Kong's spending. And indeed, if such money actually went into R&D spending in Hong Kong, if we use past data as a reliable guide to the future, we would see that profits in these Hong Kong innovation-centered companies would increase by roughly 16 million Hong Kong dollars per company per year. Now, what do Shenzhen and Hong Kong's innovation systems look like? As a reminder, an innovation system is a structure of institutional relationships that companies use in order to turn ideas into profits. The components of these innovation systems often include universities, research centers, of course companies, maybe government-sponsored entities, and even startup companies. And existing studies show that Shenzhen's university industrial linkages remain relatively fragmented. The infographic we look at now shows the clusters or the groupings of companies that work together on innovation-related projects, shows groupings or clusters of companies and universities or research centers that work together on innovative projects. The lower part of this infographic shows the qualitative nature of each of these clusters. For example, dyadic relationships characterize a relatively large percent of these clusters. Dyadic meaning two members of the group. Shenzhen's innovation system has relatively few bridgers and relatively few clusters that involve a wide number of entities. Whereas in the largest proportion of these agglomerations center around a key actor. Looking at the results from this clustering, we see that such innovative performance has benefited from cooperation across the business-university divide. Thus, such cooperation has promoted innovative interactions, has promoted these companies' own innovation, yet has come at the expense of intergroup training and training from customers. Interestingly, though unsurprisingly, the amount of education Shenzhen companies' employees have has no appreciable impact on the innovative performance of these companies. And as we saw previously, innovative clustering appears to happen much less in Shenzhen than this hub-and-spoke system centered around one central player within a particular cluster. Figure 12 from our study reviews the way that Chinese companies file for U.S. patents. 
And what we see is that both in terms of applying for U.S. patents and China patents, we see that the majority of these patent holders represent large consolidated industrial complexes. On the U.S. patent side, we see companies like Huawei, Fujian, Sinopec, whereas in on the China patent side, again we see Huawei, ZTE, and again Sinopec, suggesting that it's the same large industrial groups that are filing for patents in these various jurisdictions. Thus, despite all the media attention on Shenzhen as a center for entrepreneurship, these data suggest that much of the innovation in the region remains centered on large industrial groups. Thus, the message from this group of infographics appears that large enterprises dominate the innovation scene and that other players remain relatively atomistic and universities play a role in promoting innovation, but their contribution to Shenzhen's innovation system remains exceedingly weak. For the weakness of Qianhai's universities, other evidence suggests that cooperation with Hong Kong's universities could well increase the performance of these innovative en endeavors. Fu and Li run regressions trying to explain novel innovation and the diffusion of innovation in the region. And what they find is that Shenzhen companies' cooperation with Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, or Korean universities leads to a significant bump in novel innovation. Cooperation with other organizations leads to a much less pronounced increase in such innovation. And the returns to both internal R&D and external R&D remain relatively mitigated. Yet other data appear to contradict these trends. Huang and Sharif, for their study, show that R&D intensity does indeed have a significant impact on industrial growth, that horizontal spillovers of capital from Hong Kong do indeed affect such industrial growth in Shenzhen, as do spillovers of other types of foreign capital, yet cooperation with Hong Kong companies does not appear to influence industrial growth, except perhaps to reduce such growth. Thus, the picture emerging from these studies appears to be that Hong Kong's universities and thinking institutions tend to produce marketable, profitable innovations in Shenzhen, but cooperating with Hong Kong's own innovative companies does not. As such, policymakers try to design Qianhai in a way that can grab the benefit from collaboration with universities in the area, particularly when there are no market incentives for these companies to cooperate. Namely, if Shenzhen companies do not receive any benefit from cooperating with Hong Kong companies, why would they? Such a lack of cooperation probably hinders innovation on both sides of the border. Moreover, for all the talk of government support to R&D, the data suggests that government subsidies to innovation at the best have no effect and at the worst actually hobble these innovative companies' ability to generate profitable new goods and services. Studies such as Girma point to the large-scale effect that foreign investment has had in the region in terms of promoting innovation. They point to not only the significant benefits that foreign investment has brought for innovative companies in the region, but also the benefits that export markets bring. If government support does in fact increase innovation, the impact of such spending may be too small to actually measure. Guo et al. in this infographic point to the effect on total sales of variables like a new patent filings, export volumes, and so forth. And what we see is that companies receiving InnoFund support from the Chinese government tended to see larger sales, new patents, new product sales, higher export volumes, and so forth, but the effect was so small that the only way we could show it in this infographic was to multiply that effect by a thousand. These data thus suggest that if China's innovation fund had any impacts, the measure of those impacts would likely be very small indeed. 
Other data shows that support from national or local governments has mixed effects on new product market share and R&D slash innovation. Support from Beijing appears to support new product market shares, yet seems to have very little, if any, impact on R&D and innovation. Financial support from the Hong Kong government or Guangzhou government tends to correlate with decreases in the market share of new products and also has negligible effects on R&D and innovation. Unsurprisingly, firm size seems to correlate most strongly with new products market share, even if such firm sizes endow no particular benefits to companies engaging in R&D or innovation. Thus, these studies and studies like them tend to suggest that government subsidies hurt rather than help innovation in what we call the Qianhai region. Hong Kong's own policy failures in the area of innovation tend to underscore the broader failure of subsidization and support to innovation policy in the region. The infographic we see in front of us shows the average funding from Hong Kong's Innovation and Technology Fund by sector. And despite public pronouncements that the fund supports new and innovative sectors, we see that the clothing sector attracted the highest amount of average funding from the fund. We see that electronics companies, IT companies, and biotech companies did attract relatively large amounts of funding. Yet, with average funding sizes of only 4 million Hong Kong dollars for these electronics companies, one might ask what appreciable effect such funding would have on innovation. In other words, how much R&D, how much new product development could these companies engage in with such limited amounts of money? As we show in our paper, the Hong Kong Innovation Fund and innovation policy more generally has been extremely badly designed and has not contributed to either innovation or increases in any profits from these sectors. Looking at Hong Kong's innovation parks, we see that they only made $68 million on roughly $730 million in revenue. 97% of these parks' revenue came from property-related transactions rather than reaping the benefits of investment in innovation. And indeed, we don't see many signs of such investment in innovation, as almost half of these parks' expenses consisted of administrative and operating expenses as well as marketing the parks. Thus, Qianhai represents a chance to reform the fund, its innovation parks, and similar policies. Naturally, many observers of Qianhai rightly point to the competitive effects that Qianhai might have on existing innovative companies in Shenzhen and Hong Kong. The infographic we see in front of us shows the flows of co-investment on the mainland and with Hong Kong in 2008. And what we see is that Shanghai and Beijing continue to attract the lion's share of such investment. Shenzhen and Hong Kong have not attracted very much investment. And if Qianhai comes online, there's relatively little to suggest that Qianhai would create a stronger magnet in attracting these funds. And if Qianhai does attract companies, it's likely that companies would choose Qianhai for political rather than economic reasons. The infographic we see in front of us shows the impact of a foreign listing on economic and political returns from these companies. Thus, we see that companies that list overseas and thus seem likely to participate in a venture such as Qianhai, these companies would receive a relatively large amount of media exposure and the officials connected with these companies are far more likely to be promoted. Yet we see that these companies listing abroad tend to see declines in their sales, declines in re returns on assets, and declines in market-adjusted returns. 
And indeed, it's no wonder that Chin Hai is unlikely to have any large impact on innovative companies' profitability. Simply by looking at the regulations in place governing Chin Hai, we see that very few of these regulations require concrete or even implementable activities. This figure shows the concreteness and implementability of provisions from Qinghai's supporting policies as adopted by the State Council, and the most concrete and implementable provisions in these rules tended to focus on administrative tasks rather than large-scale activities focused on improving profits in the region. Thus, we've seen that Qinghai suffers from significant design problems and that any benefit accruing from Qinghai would only result from significantly changing the laws currently in place. In our paper, we review two legal instruments which we believe might tip the balance in favor of Qinghai's profitability, a Qinghai agreement and an ordinance governing industry-academic research cooperation in Hong Kong and Guangdong. As for the Qinghai Agreement, some bold ideas aimed at promoting profits in the region include giving direct effect to selected Hong Kong laws, approximating Qinghai's administrative laws to those laws in Hong Kong which clearly work, privatizing the Qinghai Authority, and if privatization is completely off the table for the Communist Party, then the regulations for the authority should be changed to require that the authority authority turns a profit. Such regulatory change should also endow officials working in the authority with the flexibility and freedom needed to attain these profits. Moreover, such an agreement could carve out exemptions to securities and other regulations for innovative companies in the Hong Kong Shenzhen region that choose to list on the small companies board. Other parts of the agreement could include reforms to dispute resolution and quasi-judicial review of commercial disputes, performance-based measures for the Qianhai and Hong Kong's Innovation Bureau. Such performance measures would focus again on the actual production of profits and to a lesser extent innovation rather than focusing on the time needed to get papers out the door and the agreement would provide a concrete work plan for the Closer Economic Partnership Agreement. As we describe in our paper, the agreement carves out numerous exemptions, and much of the language is so abstract as to make the actual agreement relatively untenable. As for an ordinance allowing for research cooperation between industry and academia, we support the establishment of a legal structure which would allow universities and businesses to create joint research vehicles. These vehicles would represent vessels that would hold intellectual property developed by academic departments and companies together. In that way, these partnerships could commercialize their discoveries without imposing liability on the university or the company involved. Existing innovation funding is completely mired in bureaucratic rules, thus another part of the ordinance would provide for an explicit investment charter for such funding, as well as direct such funding toward the actual production of innovation, rather than simply following rules. We also describe reform to Hong Kong's patent arrangements, we specifically argue that Hong Kong's institutional offering could include patent protections. We advocate the relaxation of current requirements that university research be academic. We might advocate an open wires policy for Qianhai, such that residents or workers in Qianhai would not be protected from China's great internet wall and we outline reforms to already existing cooperation, such as that establishing the University of Hong Kong Shenzhen Institute of Research and Innovation. In theory, nothing stops Shenzhen or Hong Kong's governments from adopting these regulatory reforms. Few people have tried to model the effect that innovation has on profits. Our model tries to weed out the effect of R&D spending on profits by looking at company balance sheets. 
In our model, we specifically assume that R&D spending would increase innovation in these companies as modeled by moving up the technological ladder. In economic modeling, many researchers rely on a technological continuum or some linear measure of innovation that companies draw upon almost like capital in order to make new goods and services. The effect of moving up this technological continuum would be either to increase market prices or decrease production costs. Such an increase in price or decrease in cost would thus reflect in the firm's profits. Increased profits naturally generate the investable funds needed to engage in more R&D. Slightly more complicatedly, we model capital R&D and profits as the nonlinear combination of each other. Thus, we try to weed out, using complicated modeling and econometric methods, the effect that profits, R&D spending, and other spending has on investment, the effect that capital and profits have on R&D spending, and other expenses have on profits. Looking specifically at these firms' balance sheets, we try to trace the impact on profits from cash through R&D spending onto revenues and eventually into profits. Naturally, we have to look at the impact on dividends, retained earnings, shareholder returns, and tax payments in order to make sure that changes in these factors actually line up with the changes we observe in profits. And we need to control for other factors, such as these companies' assets, capital expenditure, debt levels, employment levels, and investment in intangible assets. In order to look at the effect our regulatory proposals would have on such profitability, we vary the parameters we've shown in the model, adjusting these factors for some of these changes, such as the ability to use Hong Kong law in Shenzhen courts, the adoption of performance-based funding, the privatization of the Qinhai Authority, and so forth. Our method specifically looks at the impacts on expected profits, profits in equilibrium, and the optimal achievable profitability of these companies. And what we see is that past attempts to reform innovation structures have passed through into increased profits. The figure we show in front of us looks at the impact of increased company cash and R&D spending on profits. And we show various scenarios, such as the relatively low R&D spending and the pass-through of such spending into profits in companies like Detroit or legacy companies. We look at the effect of new technologies such as fracking. We look at the effect on profits from R&D spending when an innovation system engages in medium structural change and large structural change, as we've shown previously in our model. And we show a contrast with Silicon Valley and the way that its R&D spending and investment translates superlatively into profits. These data show that structural reform causes larger impacts on profits than just giving resources. And we see that the situation in Qinhai would probably be no different. The infographic we see in front of us shows the effect on profits of innovative companies in the Qinhai region as they receive more capital, as they engage in more R&D spending, and as policies which affect their profitability change. And what we see is that endowing these companies with more capital would have the lowest impact on profitability. We see that large regulatory reform would have the greatest impact on profits. And we see that administrative changes such as those we proposed would have the largest impact on these companies' profits. Thus, our model clearly shows that Qinhai's plans need to focus on soft infrastructure, such as the regulations governing these innovative companies, instead of building out urban infrastructure. Looking first at the short-term impact on profits, we see that our regulatory reforms would have the biggest effect on R&D spending. 
These reforms would thus clearly incentivize companies to engage in more R&D spending because they know that higher levels of R&D spending would translate into more investment and thus more profits. In terms of impacts on these profits, we see that privatizing the Qinhai Authority and adopting certain parts of Hong Kong law would generate the largest impacts on profits out of equilibrium. Or in other words, they would give the largest growth boost to these companies before looking at the way they increase these companies' long-term profitability potential. And what we see is that the application of a very simple idea to Qianhai, increasing the profit incentive of these companies. We see naturally that there is some optimal level of legal reform, particularly when looking at Qianhai's out-of-equilibrium profits or looking at the short-term push in these companies' profitability. We see that large-scale legal reform would cause a certain amount of disorganization and a certain amount of disruption which might eat into the profitability of such R&D spending. Yet, even in this case, we see that these large-scale reforms would increase the returns to other types of spending, such as investments in intangibles, where more R&D spending can't produce any more profits. Thus, regulatory reform can help these companies squeeze more profits out of their operations, even when the productivity of their R&D spending has been maxed out. Along similar lines, we see that medium levels of regulatory reform would tend to maximize these profits over time. The infographic we see in front of us shows the change in Qinhai companies expected out of equilibrium profits for various levels of regulatory reform. Indeed, if Qinhai proceeds as it's currently designed, we would expect to see an increase in profits. Yet, even for small levels of reform, we would expect to see a very large jump in the profitability of these innovative and logistics companies. Large-scale reform would lead to more profits, but it's medium levels of reform that would correlate with the largest amount of profitability. We will see in a moment how large-scale reform might jeopardize current profitability, yet help to maximize future profitability. Thus, the red line we see in front of us might represent a more accurate path for such changes in profits as Qinhai adopts various regulatory reforms. Yet, regardless of the level of reform, we see that any reform at all can generate enough benefits in order to pay off any political costs incurred, as politicians and policymakers incur the wrath of certain segments of the population. We see that the Qinhai project, particularly with regulatory reform, could generate the resources needed to promote sustainable acceptance of such reforms. The equilibrium level of profits follows a similar trend. In the previous infographics, we looked at that short-term or temporary bump in profitability from regulatory reform. In this infographic, we look at the effect that these reforms will have on the longer-term trend in profitability. Economists refer to this level as the equilibrium level of profitability. Namely, we want to know how profits in these companies would change when no other policy reforms or changes are occurring. And what we see again is that equilibrium profits reach their highest for medium levels of regulatory reform. We see that all of these companies would use less R&D resources as Qinhai or Shenzhen and Hong Kong engage in such regulatory reform. And we see that regulatory reform would make these companies more efficient. Namely, they would require less cash, less investment, in order to generate the profits coming out of Qinhai. As in the previous case, we see that regulatory reform increases the profitability of other types of expenditure beside R&D spending. This infographic shows the effect of other spending on profits for companies likely to locate in Qianhai. And we see that as such spending increases geometrically, the impact that R&D has on profits increases by orders of magnitude.
we see that even before any kind of reform, simply pushing more resources into Qianhai's companies would certainly increase profits. This infographic shows the way that such other spending impacts on the relationship between R&D spending and profitability. Namely, as Qianhai's companies engage in other types of spending, this naturally would complement R&D spending. In other words, these companies would get more out of their R&D buck as they engage in other types of spending, yet as we've shown, these companies should promote structural reform instead of making these very costly investments. The infographic we see in front of us illustrates the reason why relatively small changes in regulatory policies and similarly relatively small changes in R&D spending and investment potentially translate into relatively large changes in profits. In our model, it's the feedback loop between cash investment, R&D spending, and profits which generates changes in profitability. As companies grow out other types of spending, they should expect to see profits increase proportionally because this increase in profits then generates cash which they use to generate more profits as well as engage in more research and development. Figure 60 represents one of the key figures from our paper. In this figure, we show profitability under a range of scenario. We show profits in Hong Kong and Shanghai's innovative sectors if these jurisdictions continue to operate separately. We show the effect of Shanghai on equilibrium profits, and we also show the effect on the optimal level of profits, or the highest level of profits that these companies can generate. And what we see is that there's a divergence or a difference between equilibrium profits and optimal profits. In other words, as Qianhai is currently designed, profits will not settle into their optimum. The equilibrium level of profits, that level where profitability has no incentive to change, lies far lower than the level which maximizes shareholder value. Figure 62, for its part, shows the effect of regulatory reform on this difference. If small amounts of regulatory reform decrease the gap between equilibrium profits and optimal profits, large regulatory reform almost obliterates this difference. In theory, the only way that these companies can achieve their optimum is through the Qianhai Authority investing resources into these companies such that they achieve their optimal amount of profits even though this level's too high to sustain in the longer term. As regulatory reform occurs and as equilibrium profits tend toward the optimal profit levels, we would thus expect to see spending by the Qianhai Authority fall. In this series of figures, we look at the effect on optimal levels of profits, R&D spending, and cash as Qianhai engages in reform. Without any reform, the optimal level of profits, the optimal level of R&D spending, and the optimal amount of cash and investment these companies should have lying around increases as these firms engage in other types of spending, However, the extent of this increase simply follows past trends. We would not expect Qianhai to become a rival to Silicon Valley or other innovation centers. As Qianhai engages in limited legal and regulatory reform, we see an interesting thing happen in the relationship between optimal profits, R&D spending, and cash. We see that the optimal amount of cash these companies need to employ increases dramatically. We see the optimal level of profits fall significantly, in part because we see that the amount of R&D spending that these companies need to engage in increases exponentially. Thus, by only engaging in limited reform, we see that these companies have to plow in a large amount of other resources and engage in large amounts of R&D spending in order to grow the level of their optimal profits. Yet, such reform would probably maximize Hong Kong and Shenzhen's position as a financial center as such reforms would maximize the amount of cash that these companies need to attract. 
as Chinhai engages in extensive regulatory reform, we see that the amount of cash these companies require falls, as does the magnitude of R&D spending, and we see greater sensitivity of optimal profits to other types of spending. Thus, we can expect even smaller companies engaging in innovation would benefit without taking away the benefits of growing the region as an international financial center. Thus, we see if the current trajectory focuses on limited growth in profit, regulatory reform encourages investors to plow cash in, which not only grows the region's profits, but also increases assets in the region, deepening Shanghai's and Hong Kong's position as an international financial center. Similarly, we see an increase in optimal profits and optimal levels of cash investment, and we see that optimal levels of R&D increase relatively slowly. This suggests that these companies become far more efficient at using research and development resources in order to generate cash and profits. We see, unsurprisingly, that cash investment in these companies declines as they engage in other types of spending, we see that other types of spending not only increase optimal profits, but also increases optimal levels of R&D. Thus, counterintuitively, we see that increased levels of other spending increases optimal levels of R&D. Namely, the region would become more efficient at using research and development, converting this spending into profits without a lot of external intervention. Naturally, these figures are subject to argument and interpretation, as we could only use balance sheet data in order to estimate the effects of R&D spending on profits and vice versa. Yet, we see the effect of reform most starkly over time. Figure 65 shows the effect of regulatory reform on profits, R&D spending, and cash the effects over 10 period horizon, where we don't say years because the model looks at time periods, and such time periods rely on investment and the speed of reform. And what we see is that even though optimal levels of R&D spending fall, these reforms incentivize large bursts in R&D spending, particularly in the later years. We see that these changes reverberate strongly into the future, making Chinhai's prospects as an international financial center the largest in this 10-period horizon. We see that profits in the region would increase by roughly a factor of 10, assuming Chinhai adopts the strongest form of the regulatory reforms we propose. Yet we see that these reforms would make Chinhai a veritable center for research and development. Thus, in this paper, we've only cared about profits because profits are the ultimate measure of the success of innovation policy. And what we've seen is that by adopting such regulatory reforms, Chinhai can produce the profits that policymakers and local companies alike desire. This has been another Infographic Instant conference presentation with Brian Michael.